Would you ever go back to being a CEO? Uh, would you ever want to do that again? Uh, I think I would, but maybe more on my own terms, less on my VC's terms. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's what I've realized. And even at my current job at Pirin, like, I like that we don't have any investors. Uh, I like that I have one CEO and we just, we interface and we solve problems. We have a board and so forth too. But uh, yeah, like that Whittleby was a great business. We made a million dollars in like six or seven months in sales. That is amazing. Really fast. Oh, that's impressive. Um, and then a year into it, we were making $3 million in annual revenue already, reoccurring revenue. And so it was going really, really good, but the VCs are just like, go, go, go. And I'm like, but wait a minute, my inventory's breaking, my supply chain's not like ironed out, like we're growing too fast. And they're like, perfect, keep doing that, and here's a little bit more money. And like just kept pushing and pushing. Wow. So that would have been an amazing, maybe more of a lifestyle business. Yeah. And there's no fault in having a lifestyle business. You don't have to go build the next unicorn. Like if you, and I've had lifestyle businesses as well. Like if you have these businesses, it's making some money for you. You enjoy doing it, great. Welcome to 14 Minutes of SaaS, the show where you can listen to the stories and opinions of founders of the world's most remarkable SaaS scale-ups. Episode 77 of 14 Minutes of SaaS is the second installment of a five-part mini-series. I'm Stephen Cummins, chatting with Sean Percival, CMO at Whereby, formerly of Fibrant Startups. MySpace was big data dumb, according to Sean, and that's why they lost to Facebook. As a funny side story, the first thing I had to do actually when I came in there was I had to get rid of Tom. You remember Tom? He was your first yeah. friend. Uh, and Tom was on his way out and, and you know, had a good run and, and he was going out, but um, I had to get rid of Tom. And that's a very <laughs> weird thing to do because he's like a person but also a mythical god in some way. And, <laughs> You know, the photo of Tom was loaded over a billion times every single day on the site. Wow. You know, it's like that's how much that face looking over his shoulder, kind of seeing you, is a billion times every yeah. single day. But they needed to um, move on. We had to move on. We yeah. didn't want a face to be that. I mean, face, no other site really had the face of a person, person. an employee. Yeah. So there's dangerous when you build your brand around an employee. You know, they leave, things change as you, well. You're so very, very vulnerable. That was the first thing. And it was a lot of like just trying to like stitch things up and, and really understand. And did doing that did that cause some some tensions internally like you actually being the one that was saying look we need to change and you actually going and making that happen were there a few people that never forgave you for that or absolutely yeah 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 there was a lot of people that weren't very happy and the thing is I came in with uh, Mike Jones who became the CEO of MySpace and I had worked with him uh, I had executive buy-in so I could make tough decisions and do things but yeah, a lot of people, because I'm the new guy, I wasn't a founder, I wasn't there from day one. Yeah. So their view is like, you don't understand the history. And my view is more like, I'm not worried about the past, I'm worried about surviving the future and sure. being sustainable and, and starting to grow again. So yeah, I had to make a lot of decisions, but it was tough. I mean, I remember the first meeting I had with the marketing group, I've never been in a more depressed meeting. Just everyone was so defeated. Still a bigger site than Facebook, still had more traffic, still wow. had everything, but it's just, I don't know, they knew things were happening, they saw people getting laid off, and so a lot of it was just motivation and empowering my employees yeah. to do good stuff. They and were, I still do that today. They, they were still in a place where they could have turned that chip around and done something amazing. And, uh, it, it, you know, 
it's not a zero-sum game at yeah. the end of the day always and they were fundamentally a bit different to Facebook yeah. I mean it was there was music streaming there they were kind of cool there were people Customizable. people doing yeah. different stuff than 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 on Facebook and it's almost it, you're almost describing something where you, you've got this this castle full of jewels but the people living in the castle are blind or half blind yeah. and they just don't know what they've got or they're kicking the rocks out they're kicking out the doors you know they're just the one analogy is kind of like if you sell a home or if your home gets foreclosed and you're mad about it, you just kind of pour concrete down the bathtub just yeah. to be a jerk. Yeah. You know, there was some of that going on. So you're right. If it was a startup, we would have rolled up our sleeves and say, let's do this. Yes. Let's figure it out. But it was a large corporation and people were incentivized as if they were corporate executives because they were. So, yeah. so they were too comfortable. A lot of them were already made for life or close to it. Yeah. And, they, and it was what's in it yeah. for me, you know, and then yeah. the passion for like you know, what they had and, and like you said, uncovering those gems or dusting those gems off and, and making something great. Yeah, it wasn't there. The yeah. energy was sucked out. Yeah. yeah. I suppose it's easy now to look back and, and, and look at the value of the data they had and go, oh, how could they not see that? But I suppose, you know, if we look at the back, if we go back to those days, people would have thought, although it was only just starting, they would have thought LinkedIn was a bigger play, would become a bigger player than Facebook, for example. Yep. I don't think, I don't think humans fully understood some did, of course, but most humans didn't really understand the power of personal data like that and, and uh, you know, what, what that could turn into in the future. Uh, I think it's very true. I think so. Remember, Facebook was for colleges. It was yeah. for, like, wealthy white college kids. Yeah. It's like, okay, maybe it's a large niche, but still, it's a niche. And that was always our view. It's like, no, why would you want to be there? It's too utilitarian. It's so boring. You can't customize. So our view was just very poor, where we just said, no, we're always going to be very creative and making our own sites. But in the end, the users wanted more structured data, and fa Facebook was happy to structure the data because it's that was more, more, <laughs> more powerful for them. Yeah, absolutely. More ways to segment and interests and targets and all this other stuff yeah. that eventually became the financial machine of the business. Yeah. So for them, yeah, I mean, they were smart, you know. I also look a lot like the, the tortoise and the hare, you know, yeah. And, and yeah, we were moving crazy, crazy fast. They moved a lot slower. They went yeah. public. I don't think they were profitable. Uh, you know, they didn't have the exponential growth, uh, but they knew. I, don't know. I think they quickly understood that the users were the product. They yeah. very quickly understood that. And and uh, but I mean, in fairness, your direct competition is 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 a very unusual entity. It was an unusually uh, an entity that executed incredibly well. Absolutely. So it wasn't exactly a normal opponent uh, no. in the space. Uh, from my own world, when I was, you know, an early employee in Salesforce, I can remember uh, seeing Siebel and, and wondering, why don't they build a cloud version? But of course, they had these huge contracts. They, they decided to stick their head in the sand and rather than cannibalize some of their own business, which is sometimes something you have to go through at some point for, for a lot of companies and a lot of industries, and then turn themselves into this incredible dominant uh, cloud company instead, you know, instead of doing that, instead of embracing SaaS, um, they put their head in the sand, thought they could keep doing what they're doing, and of course, very quickly, the demise came. But also, it's hard to be the first one, and then and then completely change yourself as the, as the thing matures and and and, yeah. and goes I remember, on. technology was shifting. Uh, during the beginning of social media, there was no iPhone. You know, the iPhone yeah. didn't exist. Yeah, and so it's like you had like. There, all these shifts happened. The, the best phone, the best, uh, the best services in the world in 2000, we'll say, were in Japan. Yep. I mean, you had, you know, uh, you had 3G uh, deployed throughout Japan and to a lesser extent Korea, and the things they were doing on phones, the services they had, 
uh, were miles beyond anything in the West. Uh, so it was another yeah. world at that point. The US, for example, wasn't really doing anything in that sp in the mobile space. They were doing everything in the internet space, in the, in the kind of for desktops and stuff. Um, but yeah, the iPhone changed everything. Yeah. But now this is what's fascinating. We're like before it took a hundred years for an industry to shift. Now it's about 10 years. Yeah. And like Japan's a great example where like, look at Blade Runner. Why is there all the Japanese in there? Because their view in the 80s was that we will literally be speaking Japanese in 20 or 30 years because of their technological progress. And they lost it all. You know, so it's like fortune changed really, really quick. It's not this large cycle of 100 years now. It's 10 years and maybe this will be five years and maybe it'll be two years, you know, coming up too. Just how fast technology is moving. It's quite fun. And you know, it's amazing you, you, you reference Blade Runner because for me it's the, it's the most atmospheric uh, movie, the original one, yeah. and the second one's pretty atmospheric too, but the, the most atmospheric movie I've ever seen. And I had experienced that landing in Shinjuku because mm. I, I worked there. And that, and that first experience of my first night in Japan, I walked around Shinjuku for hours during <laughs> the night. Just eyes glazed, yeah. Oh, I couldn't believe it. Like, yep. and, and what they did was they took that and augmented it. But interestingly, and I can't believe I'm mentioning this mm. for a second time, I, I interviewed somebody yesterday and mentioned it, but uh, Solaris, I saw Solaris just a couple of nights ago. Mm. It's a 1972 Russian science fiction movie. And incredibly, uh, they predict self-driving cars. So this guy in self-driving car, and he's like, uh, he's been interviewed and he's using an appear-in type video connection mm. in the car. And where, where did they film the, 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 the driving? This is 72, Japan. Yeah. Because it was the closest thing to a futuristic mm. thing, we ha environment that we had with highways and, and, and tall yeah. buildings. The neon signs. Tokyo yeah. was the closest thing we had to it. So it's amazing that that, that paradigm was used mm. um, back then. Mm. Uh, I have a feeling you have an interest in Japan, but I'm going to ask you about that a bit later. Um, you went on after that. Uh, kind of incredible experience, kind of ups and downs, to become, I think you worked for a company called Science, which probably got you exposed to kind of looking at several startups and stuff like that. I think you were, from memory, I think you were um, a, an entrepreneur in residence. And then you founded your own company for the first time, you're CEO of Whittleby. Yeah. And that was really a very different type of uh, company. How did, how did that go and you know, what were the good, what was the good and bad? Mm. That you took out of that? Yeah, I shifted completely because the MySpace experience, while it was interesting and I learned a lot, I told myself, one, I'll never work in a large organization again. I'm a startup guy, I gotta get back to that. And I'm sick of trying to move millions of people around in some type of like framework. I wanted to actually ship real product. So it was an e-commerce company. And I know you have two kids and as do I as well too. And essentially what happened is, yeah, I had my daughter and that changes your view on a lot of things in life. Absolutely. As the entrepreneur, I also said, wow, it's very expensive to have a kid. I'm gonna be buying a lot of clothes for this kid. <laughs> That's a great business. And I just sort of went on a pain point. And I think the best entrepreneurs are solving a pain point in their life. Personal life, something they do in business, a process they don't like. I hated going to the mall. It was a nightmare going with your kids to the mall. It's like, they don't wanna go to the mall. They don't wanna try on things. So Whittleby Or was, they want to mess with everything. <laughs> they want to pull stuff down. I always also tell the story about the one time I did, a kid actually threw up in front of me and I was like, okay, I think I'm done with this experience. <laughs> so what I want, thought about as the entrepreneur and this kind of automation geek was I was like, well, why don't we just automate your kid's wardrobe and every month you get a little bit of clothes and then as the seasons change, the clothes change. And it's tailored and personalized and all this good stuff, but you never have to go shopping again or just supplementing your wardrobe the entire year. 
And that's what I started with. And I started with the idea and I did very kind of bootstrap ways of getting started and getting my first 10 and 100 customers. Yeah. And yeah, I went on to raise venture capital for the first time. I, I had done Amazing. other startups, I've been part of startups. Yeah. Uh, but I went on to raise about $3 million, which at the time was a huge uh, seed round. Absolutely. Seed rounds are about half a million dollars if by then. If by then now well. it's like, yeah, it's a normal thing. But yeah. back then that was a very, very large round. Great investors like Google Ventures and a few others as well and tried to build a large e-commerce manufacturing company. Like literally, like still was digital in the sense that that's how I acquired users. Um, but I wanted to be more real. I wanted to like have the more tactile feeling of a real product that I could hand to someone and ship to them. And it was a good experience and I have lots of stories there. And it, yeah. it shot up like a rocket ship and it blew up as well too. So I'm <laughs> happy to talk about any of that as well. Would you ever go back to being a CEO? Uh, would you ever want to do that again? Uh, I think I would, but maybe more on my own terms, less on my VC's terms. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's what I've realized. And even at my current job at Pirin, like I like that we don't have any investors. Uh, I like that I have one CEO and we just, we interface and we solve problems. We have a board and so forth too. But uh, yeah, like that Whittleby was a great business. We made a million dollars in like six or seven months in sales. That is amazing. Really fast. Oh, that's impressive. Um, and then a year into it, we were making $3 million in annual revenue already, reoccurring revenue. And so it was going really, really good, but the VCs are just like, go, go, go. And I'm like, but wait a minute, my inventory's breaking, my supply chain's not like ironed out, like we're growing too fast. And they're like, perfect, keep doing that, and here's a little bit more money. And like just kept pushing and pushing. Wow. So that would have been an amazing, maybe more of a lifestyle business. Yeah. And there's no fault in having a lifestyle business. You don't have to go build the next unicorn. Like if you, and I've had lifestyle businesses as well. Like if you have these businesses, it's making some money for you. You enjoy doing it. Great. Nothing wrong with that in the world as well. Absolutely. So I, I and the world you know, has to have a lot of businesses like that. There's only so much great space thing. for yeah. most for, businesses. I, yeah. At least in the Nordics, like most businesses are like less than five people. You know, they're wow. tiny little organizations yeah, yeah. as well. So I don't know, it just, it, it grew too fast. It's like Kid Icarus, it flew too close to the sun. Uh, it's a great idea. That idea has been copied a hundred times. I haven't seen anyone scale it massively. But uh, yeah, I, I wrote a lot about it and it, it failed and there was challenges and I went through founder depression and all this awful stuff. And I wrote a lot about it, which at the time was not really happening because it's, remember, founders have this facade of everything's great. Being invulnerable, yes. I, I'm crushing it. But I still wouldn't call that a failure in the sense that you achieve more learning and also you actually got it up to a certain level. It just seems like perhaps uh, if you'd had a better VC, actually, uh, maybe that's a controversial thing. Maybe they're friends. I don't know. But it seems like... Some if, are not if, friends anymore. Okay. If you'd uh, worked my with view it, is my yeah. VC is like half of them were amazing and half were awful. Okay. And, like, okay. Uh, and we don't talk and we unfollow each other on Twitter and all this okay. other drama. <laughs> but it's like half of them are great. But that's how it is. You ha you, I had, you know, 12 yeah. investors. It's like, yeah, like not all of them are going to be great. In the next installment, episode three of this five-part mini-series, Sean describes how his American marketing bravado was a good fit for Oslo and whereby, given that the Nordics doesn't really have a strong marketing mindset, and he contrasts the pros and cons of the Nordics versus the United States from a business and work perspective. You've been listening to 14 Minutes of SaaS. Thanks to Mike Quill, for his creativity and problem-solving skills, and to Katsu for the music. This episode was brought to you by me, Stephen Cummins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe to the series, and give the show a rating.